Thank you for being here this morning. I trust you came ready to hear a word from the Lord and treasure his word as we study together. We're studying the New Testament book of Acts as a church. I preach it on Sunday mornings. We have a discussion on Sunday night. We pray it on Wednesday night. I want you to understand what we're doing intentionally. We're allowing the word of God to inform our rhythms in our time as a church together. So if you come on Sunday morning, Sunday evening, and Wednesday night, you will have heard discussed and prayed that text of the week. And so we do this because we believe God has called us to be a word-centered church. That is one of the four maintaining walls of this house, and I want you to recognize how that happens. That's not by accident that we do what we do. So if you're just joining us today, the book of Acts is a highlight reel in the early days of the church. The book covers a 30-year period from 30 AD to 60 AD. And right now we are at the conclusion of chapter 2, very early in that 30-year period, just months after the resurrection of Jesus, still in that Jewish period of Acts, the gospel message primarily right now going out to those Jews who rejected Christ the first time around, and the apostle Peter is the central figure of this book so far. This has been a monumental chapter in church history. We discussed the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit falling on believers, a miracle of languages where Peter preaches to a large crowd and 3,000 people left their Christless Jewish faith behind and trusted in Jesus to complete their faith and bring life to their dead religion. I like to imagine what it would have been like for those 3,000. All of a sudden, over the course of one sermon, you've left the religion of your forefathers your heritage, your life, your national identity, all behind just after one sermon. You're following a new leader in Jesus now, uh, fulfillment of the Jewish Messiah, living under something they call a new covenant. You need to learn what that is. Uh, You've just been baptized. You've just come out of the water, sopping wet, and you think to yourself, what do I do now? Everything in your life has been determined by a Jewish structure, but You're a Christian now. What does life look like? So today's message, in a small way, answers that question. What did the early church do? Well, the quick answer is that they formed a new community with a new identity. They realized that they will need each other. This small group, in short time, would basically be up against the world and experience persecution. Luke affords us a great summary here in the end of Acts 2. It's a snapshot of the routine rhythms of the earliest church gatherings. Now, here's what I want us to see today. Focus in with me here. We often hear that the early church was radical. We've heard something like that before. We long for, often, we long for, I think rightly so, our modern churches, our Western churches, our tradition-laid churches, our programmatic churches to return to the passion and simplicity of the early church? Well, guess what? It doesn't get any earlier than the early church in today's passage. This is the first fruit church. If that's what you want, this is what is in the text today. But as I sat down and looked at this message, get ready for it, I noticed this radical church that we often hear about is really just radically devoted to the normal rhythms of the Christian life. You see, you don't have to actually be a radical to be radical, especially not in 2022. You just have to be radically devoted to a few 
things, and you will be radical. So I want to show you those things today, and we'll see that being like the early church is simple enough and routine enough for any modern church to recalculate and adapt to God's ways. So let's pray before we look at the word. Lord, would you settle our hearts now as we prepare to hear a word from you. God, that you would show us exactly what you want us. Lord, on an individual level first, that every person in here would hear from you, that that you would convict in a way that only you can. And then, Lord, corporately, that you would teach our body something together, that you would lay a, a collective spirit on our hearts and that we would unite around that message today. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn to Acts 2.42. That's where we're going to be today, Acts 2.42. This text picks up in the immediate aftermath of the 3,000 being saved on Pentecost. Uh, This is a summary statement of Luke giving us the characteristics of this Pentecost church in its early days. And so that's where we're going to start together, Acts 2.42. Hopefully, you recognize at least this first verse. It says, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, and the fellowship, the breaking of bread, and the prayers. And all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. As we read that passage, we see the so-called radical early church. Now, I want you to answer this. What was radical about them? Truly radical. The way I see it, there's only one thing in here that's not reproducible today. And it's in verse 43, it mentions the miracles done through the apostles. Now, we don't have apostles, and we typically don't see miracles. The original apostles are not here with us today. But aside from that, pardon me, the radical church seems pretty routine to me. Now, I don't want to hear any disappointment in my voice. Actually, it's the opposite. It's the opposite of disappointment. This is kind of a great thing. We don't have to read this as something we can never aspire to. Uh, Jesus did not primarily build his church on miraculous, unrepeatable events, and church history affirms that fact. So aside from the unique presence of the apostles here, everything in here, we can do. We can do this. And so I want to look at the three characteristics of the radically routine early church. The radically routine church, number one, pursues the basics of the faith, pursues the basics of the faith. There's a lot of discussions going on in, inside churches. There have been for decades now uh, amongst pastors and what needs to be done in this modern age to see the church grow. Now, first of all, I would probably argue that's not the starting point at which we should even begin. Uh, the first metric of success should be whether or not we're doing what God wants us to do and that we're faithful to him. Once that's established, then we can fairly have discussions about what's effective and what we're doing effectively. There's a large church in Colorado that, um, when we lived in Colorado, was about an hour away from us, and their big claim to fame was that their worship band would successfully and excellently play secular songs in the worship service. 
So they had Katy Perry, Lady Gaga, Justin Timberlake, Eminem songs performed by the worship team on the stage in the service on Sunday morning, in addition to a steady diet of the greatest showman tracks. That was really popular at the time. They took a lot of pride in their band being able to recreate these songs note for note and connect what their goal was to connect with unchurched people. And it's hard a lot of times to argue with very large, successful churches that are doing something when you're not that. And so a lot of mid-sized and smaller churches look at that and when you're struggling to gain attraction and you're looking uh, at that and saying, man, do we need to do we need to try something like that? Should Jared start rapping Eminem songs on Sunday morning? These are the thoughts that go through your mind, I'm sure. Mom spaghetti. I know, they just all of a sudden you're in the middle of it. Can we pull it off? If we tried it, would it work? Is this how we get unchurched people to come? You start having these conversations. Do we need to get a little bit more edgy? Let me just say, I absolutely believe this statement to be true. I hope you do too. You don't have to be radical to be effective. You just have to be radically devoted to a few basic things. The healthiest churches, in my opinion, are the ones that resist the pull to get caught up in the side salad of church life and stick to the meat and potatoes of the Christian life. Now, what are those things? I'm glad you asked. Verse 42 tells us exactly what they are. Look at verse 42. This is your memory verse. Is this the last Sunday in the month? Do we have one more? One more. All right. Whoever's up next week, you're up. All right. Memorize it now. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. Sounds simple, doesn't it? We're not supposed to recreate a Christian Disney world. There's power in the basics. And sometimes the greatest temptation is to stop believing that the basics are what we really need. Now, I want to tell you about a word, a Greek word here. If you see the word devoted themselves in your text, the Greek is proskartereo. It has a force that, yes, means devoted, but it's more than that. It means to persevere in something. It means, I saw one definition I loved. It said to persist obstinately in something. That's a good one. So we're told by Luke that this early church, they were looking around, they're wondering what to do. What do we do when things are rapidly changing in their life, changing in their culture? They picked a few basic things and latched onto them like a pit bull on a T-bone. They persevered. They persisted obstinately in what? The apostles' teaching, fellowship and breaking of bread, and prayer. That's it? That's the radical early church? Yeah, that's it. They were radically devoted to a few simple things. First, the apostles' teaching. In these early days of the church, the 12 did with others what Jesus did with them. They became the rabbis. So Jesus was their rabbi, and they became that to others because that's what they knew to do. That's called discipleship, by the way. Very fancy word that that's all that means. Do what the person that got you to the point you're at, go and do that with somebody else and get them to that point where they can go do that with someone else. Simplified. That's all it is. 
They had gained a great knowledge of the Old Testament in their time with Jesus. They were understanding how Christ fulfilled many parts of the Old Testament, and the new converts, understandably, were coming and saying, man, I'd like to learn about that. Imagine if you didn't know that Jesus was in the Old Testament, and somebody said, you know, I can show you every spot. The first time you sit down, it's just like, man, teach me. Tell me about Jesus. What was he like? I mean, you're just coming in after the fact. What, what did he do? And you're talking to people that sat with him. What did he say? Tell me the parable of the sower again. Love that one. Peter, James, John, tell me what you saw on the Mount of Transfiguration. What did you see up there? Matthew, tell me about the time he walked on water and then Peter fell in. Tell me about that time. Thomas, tell us about the moment when you touched the hands, you put your fist in his side. Now, go back through Old, Old Testament. Start in Isaiah 53. Love that one. Tell me how Jesus is in there again. I'd love to see it. Do Genesis 22. Do, do that one. Tell me about how Isaac and the ram, I'd love to hear it. Imagine on one moment, boom, you just got your Old Testament opened up. They were absolutely devoted to the word. And why wouldn't they be? It was refreshing to their heart, to their mind. It's what their souls were longing for. Church, there's a reason I made that wall number one when I came here. The word of God. In a world where truth is being degraded, we need to be the church where truth is proclaimed and applied where it's actually needed the most. And I'll tell you something, despite that what we're being told that the best way to grow your church is to change and cater the message to the next generation, I would seriously caution against that and would say, no, we're not going to do that. So first of all, I'm a millennial, kind of young myself, getting older, a lot of signs telling me it's coming, but I kind of know where young people are at. And I have a feel for Gen Z, a feel, not one myself, but I have a feel. I'm telling you, young people are hungry for truth spoken with authority and authenticity. If you can do that, they will listen to you. Young people increasingly respect a church that is devoted to simple things with the tolerance, uh, with little tolerance for a church that gets caught up in unimportant things that detract from the mission and detract from helping them to stand and be equipped in this generation. There's nothing more foundational than God's word. You need to be devoted to it. It has to be a big deal to you. You need to be fluent in Bible. You have to know it like you know quotes from The Office or Saved by the Bell or Andy Griffith. Whatever fits your generation, apply forthrightly. There. So are we Kirby Woods persevering in the word? Are we persisting obstinately in the word? Are we on it like a pit bull on a T-bone? If you say, we need to get back to the early church, but what you mean is not anything to do with the word of God, you don't mean anything. You're advocating an oxymoron. Verse 42 tells us the second thing that they did. They were devoted to fellowship, that's the koinonia, and the breaking of bread. How radical. They spent time together. They shared meals together. They got to know one another. They wanted to know one another. I'm guessing that they saw each other outside of church gatherings, you know, like actual friends. Strange. Church, I want to tell you another real need that is felt by everyone in this community. We already mentioned the need for truth. That's a, a real need. But there is another. People are longing for meaningful friendship. People are longing for a community to call their own. They're longing for a family that they can join. I love that we say we're 
the, we're a Kirby Woods family. I love that we are. I think we really are. But I want you to know we need to portray that we are a family that people can join. You can come into this family. We are for, and when you get in here, you will be treated just like our family. So church, if we can evaluate, or excuse me, if we can elevate the needs of others above our preferences, if we can pursue a mission together, if we can remain united in love for one another, we can be a place of community for our community. We can be the family that some people never had. Though we are more connected than ever through social media, people are reporting more loneliness than ever. And there are many secular, worldly, pagan communities that are quite good at attracting and keeping lonely people. But God created us for community. It will fail without him at the center. The early church figured this out. These Jews couldn't go back to their old friends after they embraced a Messiah that they had rejected. The fundamental connection that bonded them together was gone. So they had to form a new community with Jesus' followers. Everyone needs a community, a family, outside their family, everyone. If we can be that for people, man, look out. God's going to send us some people that aren't used to coming to Kirby Woods, if we can be that. But we need to be spending time with people outside our campus, outside this room and outside this building. Invite people to lunch after this service is over. And maybe if you didn't plan for it today, in the coming weeks. Have class socials and fellowships. Watch the game together on Saturdays, preferably the Big Orange, but whatever you need to watch is good for you. Go bowling, play putt-putt. I don't know if anyone does that anymore. That's what we did when I was a little kid. Play putt-putt. Go to a Grizzlies game. They're actually good now. Go to see a Grizzlies game. Eat some wings at Huey's. Best kept secret in Memphis right there. Don't just have your circle of friends. Be an equal opportunity fellowshipper. Here's a good question for you. How many friends do you have who are 10 years outside your age range? How about 20? So if you're 50, how many 70-year-old friends do you have in this church? And how many 30-year-old friends do you have in this church? Senior adults, do you have real fellowship with someone who's the age of your grandkids here in this church? Teens, college-age folk? Do you know any of our senior adults' names here? In most churches, that answer is no. It does not have to be here at Kirby Woods. So listen, folks, I'm not a perfect pastor. I will not get everything right. But Paul said imitate me, so I'm going to say imitate me on one thing, okay? I will have fellowship with any generation here in this church, and I'm praying that 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 you see me do will rub off on this church. The early church was devoted to fellowship, breaking bread together, and they persisted in it. Lastly, in verse 42, we see they were devoted, third, to prayer. It's important in the life of the church that prayer is not something done in passing, but that it's a vital part of ministry. Prayer can't just be transitional moments between things or the way we start and dismiss. Those things are starting points, but it's the minimum. The early church pursued prayer in the same sentence as studying the word. Same sentence. And they didn't say, here's a hierarchy. They said, this is what we do. Jim Cimbala says, if you're waffling on the importance of prayer, God said that my house shall be called a house of? You know it. 
Prayer is a statement of dependence on God. It's an open line of communication. It's a relationship strengthener. It's the secret weapon of power in the church. It builds the body. It binds us together. There's a reason people say the family that prays together stays together. Don't neglect prayer because the early church sure did not. Devote yourself actively, personally, privately, publicly, corporately, in the car, in the shower, at your desk, at school, on the football field, at lunch, before bed, in the morning, planned, unplanned, spontaneous, written, journaled, yes, all the above. Satan wants nothing more than for you to be careless about your prayer life and make it optional. It's like cutting off your supply line in battle. No matter the attendance, facilities, or budget of a local church, nothing tells me more about that church than their prayer meeting. And I stand by that. A church will never rise above its own prayer meeting. For every church, the prayer meeting is the least attended gathering, and it is for us right now. But listen, that is not a foregone conclusion that it must be so. It does not have to be so. Only if we decide to make it so. So devote yourselves to prayer when it's uncomfortable and when you need to grow in it. It's like going to the gym when you get out of shape. Nobody loves the first couple of visits back. There's a muscle that that has to be worked, and prayer is like that. There is a prayer muscle. I don't know where it is. Somewhere around here, I'm told. There's a prayer muscle that can get underused and atrophied, but we need to make sure that thing stays worked out. So we have seen that this radically routine church is pursuing the basics of the faith. I want to show you something else. Number two, the radically routine church portrays joyful generosity. Portrays joyful generosity. Verse 45 says, They were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. Now, just because of the weird time we live in, i got to say this. uh, This is not socialism or communism. I hate that I have to say that, but I feel that I do. Uh, This was voluntary generosity. We did not see this occurring through a government channel, taxation, and redistribution. Uh, This is a free choice by the people of the early church to voluntarily take care of one another. Uh, Taxation is not being a cheerful giver. Amen? Okay. Um, It's it's not cheerful giving uh, when you can get taken to jail if you don't do it. So now that's off the table. Let's say what it was. One thing you'll notice through these first chapters of Acts is that the Jewish converts to Christianity wanted to keep as much of their Jewish schedule as they could. So, for example, next chapter you're going to see they're on the Jewish prayer schedule. They're still using the synagogues. In the early days, they still meet in the, in the temple and in the synagogues. Uh, they, and they also wanted to keep some of the Jewish systems of giving and generosity. So God loaded into the Old Covenant. You probably remembered this verse. Uh, some fail-safes against poverty in Israel. There's a lot of examples, but my favorite is when he told people to leave the corners of their field unharvested so that the poor could go and harvest, uh, you know, a little portion of their field. It was like a food pantry in the old days. And so these Christians, these early Christians were thinking, okay, well, we're not part of the temple system anymore. We're not Jewish anymore. But let's keep some of God's practices and keep doing some things. Why? We, we may not pay a tithe to the temple, but shouldn't we keep supporting the ministry? Shouldn't we keep giving to God? 
We aren't just going to sit on our money when we've been given tithes our whole life. And so they set up new systems of giving to the church. And that's what you see in verse 45. They gave not to the temple, but to the needs of their local church. And the church dispersed the funds as any had need. I think one of the most attractive qualities in a church is that it's generous. Yes, with our time, but yes, with our money. Where your treasure is, your heart will be also. Isn't that right? Kirby Woods is a generous church. We get to serve the kingdom of God together because of your gifts. I get to devote time to preparation of my messages and prayer, and I get to say yes when you ask me to meet and to live in the neighborhood where our church meets because you are generous with me to afford me full-time work. We get to be generous in missions and around the world and support missionaries taking the gospel to places where we can't go. We get to send members of this church on short-term mission trips wherever God calls and pay for a good chunk of that trip for you to go. When one of our church members experiences hard times or is struggling to meet basic needs, we can step in and meet that need without having to worry about breaking the bank. We can help support the work of local missions in town like the Memphis Union Mission by supplying money and teams. I saw four to six men this week sitting out in that little breezeway over there smoking pork shoulder all weekend long to feed the homeless on Monday night when our church takes the fourth Monday at the Memphis Union Mission. Richard Bach, right there, still smells like a campfire today because he sat by that smoker for 12 hours, all right? But it's because of that dedication and generosity that we're able to do things like that. We get to do that because you're generous to give your time and finances and support. We know generosity begins first in the heart. Generosity is a sign that the love of God is among us. Generosity is the mark of a healthy church. I remember it said in Psalm 67 that God blesses us so that we can be a blessing to others. The church is the mechanism by which the blessing of God goes out into the world. So if you want to be radical in 2022, be generous with people, whether it's in the offering box or whether it's some need that you meet privately that nobody will ever know about. We're suffering from an epidemic of selfishness and self-centeredness in our country. Christians have an opportunity to stand out from that fray and portray joyful generosity in a way that we are free with our time and free with our money. Think about the generosity of Jesus who gave up every comfort imaginable so that we could have life. So if you want to look at a radical church, let's be generous in every single area of life. I want people to say of Kirby Woods, I think their theme song is that George Strait song, Give It Away. That's the theme song of Kirby Woods, just give it away. That's our theme song, because that's the way we think about anything that comes to us. Our goal is to give it away. Let's have a culture of generosity. It should be said of all Christians and of all churches. I hope it's never said of us that they cared more about saving a dollar than saving a soul. That would be terrible to say. The early church saw themselves as part of a family. They gave like they were giving to their own family. Let's continue in that because, guys, we already are doing that here. Let's continue in that. A radically routine church pursues the basics. They portray joyful generosity. Lastly, number three, praises God for the growth. Praises God for the growth. Look at verse 46. It says, And day by day, 
attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. So I want to draw your attention in, in our short time left to two quick phrases. First, they were praising God. Praising God. You might think in all the commotion that it would be tempting to praise the apostles. Great job, Peter. Really did great on that sermon, bud. Or to praise themselves for the tremendous growth of a new church north of 3,000 people. It might, they might be tempted to tout their own generosity and culture for the secret to their growth and write a book and sell it and everyone follows it. But no, we are told that they were praising God. It was all the Lord. This was a praising people. Words of worship were routinely on their lips. I've again always believed that a marker of a healthy church is whether we can muster the ability to give God the credit when something great is done among us. So even when you're not in a Bible study, even when you're not in a church service, think about how likely you are to give God praise for something out loud where non-churchy people can hear you say it. It shouldn't shock someone outside of our church for us to say, you know, God has really been good to me this week. He has strengthened me in this way. He's taught me this lesson. That shouldn't be foreign to our friends outside this church. There's a difference between just talking about something generically, being thankful for something, and giving God direct credit. So if you got a raise this week, you could say, man, I'm really thankful I got that raise. Versus God has provided for me and my family, and I want to thank him for giving me that raise. Both sound similar, but they're not the same. Those are not the same thing. We praise God for what he has done in our lives. I believe God has been doing a work here at Kirby Woods Baptist Church. There has been a healing taking place. There has been a unity building among our church body. Worshiping and equipping and strengthening has been happening. I have seen it. And we need to make sure in all of that that his praise is on our lips. Don't just think it, say it. Give him the glory. The second phrase I want to direct your attention to at the end is that the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Who added? The Lord added. Don't miss those little nuggets throughout Acts. Luke wants to be crystal clear. God is behind this movement. This church was faithful to the word and fellowship and prayer. They were generous with joy-filled hearts. And we are told the Lord added to them. In other words, the reason why any person responded to the gospel and trusted in Jesus and folded into this young church was no other reason than the Lord added them. Through his work of drawing, convicting, regenerating, the Lord added to and built his church. It's almost like Jesus said that was going to happen. Kirby Woods we are to try as hard as we can. We are to be as faithful as we can be. We are to pray and beg for lost people to know Jesus. We are to be generous. We are to gather and encourage one another. We are to proclaim the gospel. We are to go into the neighborhoods and to be a witness for him. But know this for certain. At the end of the day, it is the Lord who does the work. It is the Lord that adds people to us. Even through the hard work of our hands and through sacrifice, it is still him who gets the credit and the glory and the honor. Now, if you believe that, if you just amend with me on that, let me tell you two things that means. First, 
If things get tough and we are losing numbers in this church, we can say, the Lord gives, the Lord takes away, blessed be the name of the Lord. And we can hold our head up high and serve Jesus in tough soil if need be and trust that God is pruning us for his glory. That's number one. Secondly, if things are good and we are growing in number and it's prosperous times on the farm, we can say, Praise be to God who has blessed us, and it is him who does great things. All glory to him, not to us, but to your name be the glory. You see, when you believe God's in charge, and it's God adding and taking, the low moments don't crush us, and the high moments don't puff us up. It was him all along anyway. So long as we are faithful to the scripture, and we are representing Jesus and proclaiming him, we can live with the results because we would do the same thing no matter the results. That's what faithfulness does. It says the results don't dictate what I do. I'm faithful to the Lord and leave the results to him. The early church knew any success they had was because God was with them. They trusted the spirit and that's what we need to do. We need to trust that everything we have is because God gave it to us that he is in charge, and as we yield to his spirit, he will have his way among us. And so as we look at this radical church, I hope you really see they were just radically devoted to a handful of things. The word, fellowship, unity, breaking of bread, prayer, generous living, praising God. That's it. So here's your question. What's the missing link in your spiritual walk with the Lord? Which of those things do you have to say, I'm not really devoted there? I'm honestly not able to say that I persist obstinately in that. So that's going to be your invitation today, to address that weakness in your walk by God's grace. Are you devoted to the normal rhythms, the routine rhythms of grace Would you say, it's the prayer life, pastor? That's the one. Or would you say, it's the fellowship? I'm closed off, I'm isolated, I only talk to my friends here. Or would you say, it's the devotion to the word? I don't read it. Or would you say, it's the generosity? I I don't give sacrificially to the Lord. Or would you say, "It's, it's the praise? I withhold it from my mouth. So your invitation is to tighten that loose screw today by God's grace, and deal with it before you leave here. The secret to having a church that looks like Acts is not a secret. In fact, it's just devotion to the basics. So church, let's pursue the basics together and let everything else fall away, and let's be radically routine together. Pray with me.